Well, the music has been absolutely fantastic this morning. You guys are very blessed. It's good to see some of you that I have known for years and then getting to know some of you for the first time. It's been since 1994 that I was here. And that's over 20 years, isn't it? If I calculate that correctly. Uh, so uh, Christian said he introduced me last week as the guy who taught him how to preach. That is not so. Uh, I won't take credit or blame for either one. But I'll tell you the truth. I had lots of guys in my homiletics class. That's preaching class. Nobody that came into my class was so prepared for it as Christian. He was already a great preacher at 18 years old. And you guys are very blessed to have him preach for you Sunday after Sunday the Word of God. He knows... What it's about, it's about the text. It's about staying in the Word because the Word is the power of God unto salvation. And if you have a man who is dedicated to the Word, it will change lives. It can't help but do it. So I appreciate Christian and Erin so much. I don't know her quite as well. We got a little bit acquainted at the National and then we have talked last night as we went out to eat. And so I'm really pleased to be with you guys here. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. And I want to begin reading for you and with you in verse 2. We're going to read all the way down through the first part of verse 11. This is a story from the life of Christ involving John the Baptist. And it's a very powerful uh, uh, story and it has a tremendous application for us. So I want to begin reading in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 2. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples. That John there is John the Baptist. And yes, he had disciples, just like Jesus. Eventually all of his disciples left John after his death and followed Christ. And said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? That's John's question for Jesus. Are you the one... Or is there another coming? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. This is not new for John or you disciples. Again, the things which you do hear and see. And then what had he heard and seen? It's in verse 5. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor, the mean, the lowly, have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, this is the two disciples, after they got the answer from Christ, they turned to walk away. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John. Now he's going to say something about John the Baptist. What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what went ye out for to see? A man... Clothed in soft raiment, behold, they that wear soft clothing, soft clothing are in kings' houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet. Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily, amen. Listen to this. I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. This is a sermon 
about doubt. And as such, it's an unfamiliar topic in most churches, even though whole books of the Bible deal with the subject of doubt. Job, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Habakkuk, and many of the Psalms deal specifically or in some way with the subject of doubt. I was doing a Q&A session with a group of teenagers. It's been eight or ten years ago. And a 15 or 16-year-old girl raised her hand and she said, Dr. Sawyer, she said, you seem so confident and certain about everything. Do you ever have doubts? Now, that's a good one to ask your pastor. So I just said immediately, yes, I do have doubts. I don't talk about them, but I have doubts. I gave that little anecdote in a sermon a few weeks after that and a layman came directly to me And he put his arm around me with a little gleam in his eye. He said, now come on, Pastor, that's not true. You really don't have doubts. And I said, yes, I don't know how you can be a Christian and not have doubts from time to time. See, Christianity is a religion of faith. And faith itself means we can't see or hear God. We can't touch Him with our senses. And it requires faith. And faith leaves us... Doubting sometimes. This is one of the hidden secrets of the church. We all doubt from time to time. And doubt isn't sinful. And it is often the catalyst for some of the greatest spiritual growth you will ever experience. Now, there are three categories of doubt. Let me just mention these quickly. First, there's what I call intellectual doubts. These are doubts raised by people outside the church about God, His existence, and so forth. Is God real? Is the Bible true? If it's true, why is it more true than other holy books? Is Jesus the Son of God? Did He really rise from the dead? These are the doubts raised by skeptics and agnostics and atheists like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and so forth. So there are intellectual doubts raised by people outside the church. Then there are what I want to call spiritual doubts raised by people inside the church that have to do with our relationship with God. Am I really a believer? I mean, have you never gone through a season of doubting your salvation? I was saved when I was seven and I doubted it every other week until I was about 17 or 18. So we go through seasons of doubt like that. Why should I pray? And why is it so hard to pray? I mean, have you ever thought about it? God is sovereign And he knows everything beforehand, so he knows what the answer is going to be. So why ask? Why does he tell us to ask? These are doubts. If I'm saved, why do I carry such constant guilt? These are doubts raised by people inside the church. And then there, thirdly, what I want to just simply label circumstantial doubts. This is the largest category and it encompasses all the whys of life. Why did my child die? Why did my marriage dissolve? Where was my friend when I was being abused? Why was I betrayed? These are the questions we meet at the intersection of biblical faith and living in a fallen world. And we don't want to deal with them. These are the toughest doubts of all and we tend to sweep them under the rug or put them down to people who just don't want to believe. You just need to believe, brother. My wife's father was diagnosed with a brain tumor in 1992. He was 62 years of age. 
He went through a series of radiation treatments in an, an effort to shrink the tumor, but didn't work. And the doctors just basically said, Mr. Cup, we can't do anything for you. So he went home to die. Eventually, we put him in a nursing care unit, and my wife would go back and forth from Goldsboro with our three children every weekend, week in and week out, week out to stay with her father. The other children didn't live there either. Finally, six months after being diagnosed, he died. My wife cried for months. Because she lost her father, yes, but also because we don't know where he went. We witnessed to him. He heard me preach several times, but we just don't know. One particular night, she was crying so vehemently that she shook the bed and woke me up. And I rolled over and I put my arm around her as I had many times before. And I said what we said. I said, honey, you've just got to trust God. And her words struck a note in my heart that I've never heard before. She said, Randy, I want to, but I don't know how. A preacher's wife, a godly woman, didn't know how to trust. If we refuse to deal with circumstantial doubts, they will soon become spiritual doubts, and we'll question Jesus and our relationship to Him. And if we fail to deal with spiritual doubts, and eventually they'll give way to intellectual doubts, and we'll wonder if God's even real. And that's when people begin to leave the church in disillusionment. Now before I get to the text, I want to say three additional things. Keep these in mind. Number one, many people think doubt is the opposite of faith, but it isn't. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the willful refusal to believe while doubts merely express inner and momentary uncertainties. It doesn't mean you don't trust God. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It's just inner and momentary. Number two, many people think doubt is unforgivable, but it isn't. God doesn't condemn us when we question Him. Job did. David did. Jeremiah did. I mean, you're talking about a preacher called of God and God said right away, nobody's going to listen to you, Jeremiah. You're never, you're never going to have a convert. I mean, how many would continue? And he did. And he had seasons of doubt. But God never condemned. God is big enough to handle our questions. And He's not fragile. Nor should we be. Number three. Many people think struggling with God means we lack faith. But that's not true. Struggling with God is a sure sign that you have faith. And if we never struggle, we never grow. Because growth, like that little caterpillar trying to burst out of the cocoon, has to struggle to become a butterfly and to fly away. Now, a number of years ago, I was preaching the Oklahoma State Minister's Retreat with Ray Pritchard. He's an independent, I don't know if he'd call himself an independent Baptist, but a non-denominational speaker. He's very good. I enjoyed my time with him. And he introduced me to his website called keepbelieving.com. And I started following it. On one particular occasion, he posed a question to his followers. Is it hard to keep believing? 
So I ran off a few, and I want to read two or three or four of these to you right now. Remember the question is, is it hard to keep believing? One pastor shared this. He said, there came a trial for me and my wife when we knew the Lord was using difficult circumstances to mold us. But we felt as if God had abandoned us. I'll never forget the moment standing in our kitchen weeping and feeling so guilty for thinking a thing like that. Since then, the Lord has brought us through many smaller moments of faith stretching. Each time using a brother or a sister in Christ to remind us that we need to turn our eyes of faith to Him. But it's hard. Another pastor, this will get you. He said, as I write, now remember the question is, is it hard to keep believing? Another pastor said, as I write this, it is Sunday morning, 11.30 a.m. I'm supposed to be at church preaching today. I'm not there. Yes, sometimes it's hard to keep believing. Preachers? Come on. Frankly, another one said, it is a relief to me to read these entries. Sometimes I think we, my husband and me, are the only ones struggling with something. And one other, and I'll pass it on. I am one of those people who always find it hard to keep believing. I envy those for whom belief in and love of God seems to come so easily. For a long, long time I thought, I thought something was inferior in me. And then I heard... When the disciples asked Jesus, what must we do to work the works of God? Jesus replied, the work of God is to believe. I knew a man who lived 80 plus years and said he never doubted God one time. He also said in 80 plus years he was never discouraged. Now I'll have to tell you, I'm willing to take him at his word. But his experience has not been my experience. And his experience was not the experience of the greatest man ever born, John the Baptist. The story is simple. John is in prison. Why? For preaching against Herod's gross sexual sins. I think he was confused and frustrated by the incarceration. So he gets two of his disciples and he sends them over to where Jesus is preaching and he says, are you the one? Or is there another coming? It's troubling to a lot of people to to see John the Baptist doubting at this point. And I read probably a dozen commentaries from my library in studying this passage a number of years ago. And I, I detect a little bit of embarrassment. Just don't want to put John down to being a doubter. This is the man that preached righteousness and baptized them in righteousness. If anybody knew Jesus, John the Baptist knew Jesus. I I want to tell you this little story. It's from the Gospels. I don't understand this story. John was in his mother's womb, Elizabeth. Jesus was in his mother's womb, Mary. Mary and Elizabeth were cousins. You remember that, right? So John and Jesus were related. So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, carrying Jesus. When she enters the room, the text says, John, in his mother's womb, leaped for joy. 
a prenatal baby. I mean, how is a baby conscious of anything other than its mother and getting nourishment and air through the tube? I mean, this this is incredible. I know the story, but I don't understand the story. But for some way, in some way, John the Baptist knew Jesus before he was ever born, and he knew him as his master. Thirty years pass, and John has been preaching, and multitudes are following. One day he's baptizing, and he looks up and sees Jesus coming, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And I testify that this is none other than the Son of the living God. If anybody knew Jesus, John knew Jesus. And knew who he was. The next day, John is baptizing. Jesus comes down and says, John, I want you to baptize me. Jesus, uh, John says, no, no, you need to baptize me. Jesus says, no, to fulfill all righteousness. To set a total example of faith and righteousness and do what I need to do for my followers. I need you to baptize me. So John immersed, just like we saw Christian immerse this lady, Jesus was baptized. At that moment, John had a Trinitarian moment. The Father spoke from heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He looked up and saw the Spirit coming down in the form of a dove, and he had his hands on the Son. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one instant. If anybody knew Jesus, John knew Jesus. So how... At this point, is he under such doubt? The text doesn't answer it. But I think mostly it is at least a certain degree self-evident. The man's in prison for goodness sakes. He's 30 years of age. He's the one that the prophets foretold who would prepare the way of the Lord. I don't know how conscious he was of that. But Jesus certainly knew about it because he said that in this text. John is in prison, however, and his circumstantial doubts had settled in. Remember Chuck Colson of Watergate fame? Went to prison for several months. And then after he got out, he started a prison ministry called Prison International. He went to prisons all over the world in some of the dark, dankest, deep prisons in the world. And he led hundreds and thousands of these men and women to Christ. And he said, and I quote, no place on earth is more corrosive to faith than a prison cell. No place on earth is darker or more hopeless than a prison cell. Being in prison is like being dead. No one wants anything to do with you. It is no wonder that John is doubting his circumstances of change. He's not free to preach. He's not free to baptize. He's not free to confront the Pharisees and point the way to Christ. After all he's done, why is he being set aside so young? Or is he being set aside? Is this permanent? Will I die? He didn't have any answers. So he sent his disciples to get an answer. Two of them. We don't know who they are. They're not identified. Go ask him if he's the one or should we expect another. That's in verse 4. Look at verse 5. Jesus gives him an answer. Well, look back at verse 4. You need to see this. Go and show John again. Go, go remind him. 
It's not something he doesn't know. Go remind him. Those things which you do hear and see. And here's what they heard and seen. The, bl- the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the, de- uh, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. You know what? I, that's a great answer. And I've tried my, in my mind to sort out what Jesus was actually saying. And I think it's this. Go tell John the work continues. Just like he saw it before the incarceration. The work continues. Because it really was not about John in the first place. It was about the one he was pointing to. It doesn't say that I know I'm trying to interpret without a complete foreknowledge or knowledge. But I think that's what he's saying. But I am as struck by what Jesus didn't say as by what he did say. For example, Jesus didn't say, go tell John that I'm the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. I mean, he could have said that because he fulfilled numerous messianic prophecies, but he didn't say that. He didn't say, go tell John that I can walk on water. I don't know how that would have helped, but I mean, it's true. He could have said that. He didn't say, go tell John I can make the Pharisees look like fools. Again, Jesus did that many times and He could have said that, but He didn't say that. What He did say is go back and remind Him. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of what we've always believed and what our eyes have always already seen. Sometimes. So the disciples, His disciples, John's disciples turn and start to walk away. Now, get it fixed in your mind. John is over here in prison. Can't preach. I mean, I'm, I'm sure he's sharing the message with the soldiers and anybody else there, but he, he can't preach to the multitudes. And he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. John's in prison. Jesus is over here free, breathing the free air of freedom, and he's preaching and healing and raising the dead and preaching the gospel. And multitudes are coming. The disciples of John go over and ask Jesus, you know, are you the one John was expecting? And and Jesus says, go remind him. So they turn and start to walk away. They are still within hearing when Jesus turns to address the multitude and he has something very important to say about John. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness expecting to see? A trembling reed? He doesn't answer it, but that's not what they saw. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Somebody wearing soft clothes? No. He wore camel hair, we're told, in another place. He had a rough existence. He was a peasant. Those who wear soft clothing clothing are royalty. John's not royalty in that sense. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes! The prophet foretold of, and this prophet is the greatest man to ever live. Now let me put this together for you one more time. John is in jail. Jesus is preaching. The disciples have asked the question. They're turning to walk away. And Jesus says this. John may doubt me momentarily, but I don't doubt him. He's my man. 
In fact, he's the greatest man. He's my man. He's on my team. He's John the Baptist, the greatest man. He at that moment was wrestling with doubt. He didn't know if Jesus was really the one. But Jesus never questioned John's faith. Even though he was doubting. He's my man John. When I studied this six years ago, I was walking through some of the darkest waters of my life. And when I discovered this text and got the ins and outs of it, it absolutely transformed my situation. It didn't change my outward situation, but it changed my inward attitude toward it. Because I was doubting. I was doubting whether God was through with me. I was doubting whether God loved me. I didn't even know if He was real sometimes. And I found out God still loved me and still cared for me and I was still on His team. And here I am six years later standing in one of the greatest pulpits in our denomination. You know what? Jesus does not always have faith in people's faith. Turn back to John chapter 2. Keep your finger here and just turn to John chapter 2 and look at verse 23. The Gospel of John This is not John the Baptist now. This is the gospel writer. The the apostle whom Jesus loved. Verse 23 of John chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles that he did. You know what that reminds me of? Seeing is believing. You know, if you see it, you believe it. That's not what Christians say. Christians say believing produces seeing. And then it says this, But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them, for He knew all men. That text has a play on words in the original language. It says, They believed in Him, but He didn't believe in them. Sometimes... He doesn't have faith in people's faith if they don't know Him. If they're just believing because they've seen a miracle and want to see another one. And there are hundreds and thousands of people just like that. Go to church on Sunday to see a miracle. You come here and put a five in my plate and you'll get a 20 back. Because of the miracles. And He doesn't believe in that. But He believes in somebody that has genuine faith like John. He said, He's still on my team. If you're searching for the truth, go to Him and say, I need help, help me. In other words, I think over the door of every church in America, we should put two words, doubters, welcome. If you're looking for the truth, come here. If you're skeptic, come here. If you don't know where to turn, Come here, find the answers. Doubters, welcome. And that's the truth, isn't it? It has been said no truth is so strongly believed as that which was once doubted. Now let me give you four things to do to move from doubt back to faith. It's all in the text. Four things to do to do to move from doubt back to faith. Number one, Admit your doubts and ask for help. That's exactly what John the Baptist did. He said, I can't can't get an answer. I, I can't see Jesus. I'm not out there, so go ask Him. 
Be my disciples. Be my ears on this occasion. Be my eyes and go ask Him. And you know the truth is, God is waiting on some of you. Just come and ask Him. Again, I say God is not fragile. He can handle your doubts, your worries, your fears, your questions. He's a big God. He runs the universe without your help. He's not going to be worried over your momentary lapses. Don't be afraid to ask for help. One of my favorite individuals on earth was Randy Wright. When I graduated from Bible College, now Welch College, in 1978, I moved to Amory, Mississippi, and Randy and his future wife, Kathy, were in the youth group, 16 years of age. Kathy Isbell wouldn't have anything to do with Randy Wright. She wanted somebody else. If I called his name, some of you would probably know, so I won't do that. So Randy came to me in my office and he said, tell me what to do. I said, well, I don't know, flowers, try flowers. So he goes and gets flowers. What I did not know, and you have to have the subtext of this story. Randy cut grass at the cemetery (laughs) to make spending money. And when he knocked over some roses or flowers, he just made them into a bouquet. He didn't just bring, them fl- bring her flowers one time. He did it every day. I, I'm, that is a, it was told to me as the truth. So I'm just relating secondhand. I did see him bring her flowers and she, it didn't do any good. He came back and he said, what I do now? I said, try candy. Girls love chocolate. Uh, my wife is in this dark chocolate kick. You know, it's supposed to be better for you. I love milk chocolate. I want the real shot. Don't you? You know what I'm saying? He tried that. Finally, they got together. They married. Randy went into ministry, became one of the best Bible preachers Free Will Baptist had. Built a great church in the, in the nowhere land. In fact, I told him many times, you need to leave this hill here and go where the people are. But for some reason, they came to hear him from these hollers and dirt roads, and he built a great church and and raised thousands of dollars for missions. Funny, but he came down with pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer. They told him it's not a rapidly growing kind. You could live 30 years. Well, he didn't. He lived about 12. He died about two years ago. And light went out here, but it glistened in heaven. Because that's the kind of guy Randy was. And Kathy dove into doubt. I tried to call her. I was her former youth pastor. I'd say, Kathy, answer me. Call me back, please. I left message after message. I went to the National this year. Her pastor, David Crow, not the David Crow you know, but his, his nephew, I think it's his nephew, Pastors that church now, and he said, Kathy very rarely comes to church. She works, and when she's not working, she hides herself. So I came home from the National about two weeks ago. I picked up the phone, and I called her. I said, Kathy, finally. She said, I know. I should have answered before. And we talked for 45 minutes. We laughed. We cried all about Randy. I asked her about the grandchildren. She has two grandbabies, and she said, those are the light of my life. And And she said to me, she said, you told me something when 
He came down with cancer that I have never forgotten. And she said, it has helped me. I said, Kathy, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, I didn't remember. She said, here's what she said. She said, you told me if you're mad at God, go tell Him. If you're angry with God, just go tell Him. If you have doubts, just go tell Him. Because you can't do that very often and stay the same. God's not going to change, but you will. So when you are walking through a season of doubt, to move from doubt back into faith, go to God and ask for help. Do you hear me? It's that simple. And do it again and again and again and again and again. It may not change your circumstances, but it'll change you. Number two, to move from doubt back to faith, don't be afraid to borrow somebody else's faith. Again, that's what John did, wasn't it? He said, go over and ask him. They came back and said, Jesus said, remember. They... They had to loan him their trust for a season. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that's what the church is. We're a group of people who go through mountains and valleys, and some will be going through doubt and need to borrow your faith, and the next week you'll need to vice versa. I mean, there's a coffin sitting here, and a dear wife who's saying goodbye to her husband of 65 years. And she just can't trust right now. So you walk over and you give her a shoulder, give her, give her a shoulder and say, I'm with you. I'm trusting for you. Six months later, she's coming through your line and telling you, trust me now. I'll help you. I'm not talking about you being safe for somebody else. You know that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the church is a group of believer, believers who doubt. Let's admit it. And we need to loan each other faith for an instant. Number three, act on your faith, not your doubts. I think that's what John did. He was doing what he could do. Instead of just sitting there, and I think he was very worried about his situation. He's a man. He is a red-blooded flesh man. And he may die. He doesn't know if it'll hurt. I mean, I know how I would feel. So he takes the action that he can at the moment. He's moving on his faith. I want to tell you, go back through your scriptures and you will see many men moving on the faith that they had at the moment. You think Noah never doubted? I mean, for goodness sakes, 120 years building an ark in the middle of nowhere, it never rained. And the Bible says that they mocked him and they were skeptical. I think Jonah went, or Noah went home a few times and said, Honey, I just don't know if we're doing the right thing. And she loans him a shoulder and a little faith and says, You know what God said? Let's do it. Because there were only seven people in the whole world doing what he was doing. You think about Moses standing on the shore of the Red Sea. The Red Sea in front of him the Egyptian army behind him, and four million complaining Christians. And he doesn't know what to do. You don't think he ever had a moment? God, what are you doing to me? In fact, I think it says that a little bit later on. He complains. 
He says, Lord, I just I don't know what you're doing to me. Think about David. Think about Joshua. Think about Habakkuk. Think about Jeremiah. These were men who doubted. Yes, Elijah said, I just don't think I need to live anymore. Job said, I wish I'd never been born. These were men who were men of God and men of faith. But at those moments, you act on your faith, not your doubts. And let me just say it another way. The final fourth thing, doubt your doubts and hold on to what you've always known to be true. That's what John was told. Jesus said, remind him. Remind him it's about me and the work is progressing. So just move forward. I'm 61 years of age. I don't know where the time went. I look at myself in the mirror and I I hate to be on this big screen because, you know, you get 10 pounds. I'm not quite as chubby as that. You get 10 pounds. Christian is. Now, Christian is, but I'm not. (laughs) The truth is I've lost 20 pounds in the last few weeks and I'm trying to lose another 15 so I can button my coats. I just want to be honest with you and tell you there, there are some things that I used to know for dead certain that I'm not sure about anymore. I'm not telling you that I've lost my faith or my standards or anything like that. But I'm telling you when I got out of college and started in the ministry, I had all the answers. Just ask me. I had answers for questions nobody was even asking. And I would say, let me write it down for you and then you can ask me because I've got a good theological answer for this. I was in Mr. Fourline's Romans class. Best class I ever had, graduate school or anywhere. So I had the answers. 61, all these 40 years later in the ministry, some things I don't know quite sure. But you know what? There are some things that my mind now know for absolute dead certain that I will die for. This is God's revelation of Himself. I believe it with all my heart. God is real. Even though my doubts and my fragile mind can't see Him, I know He's real. Jesus is His Son. He rose from the dead. And on the morning of the third day, He got up and promised He is coming back. And we sang about it this morning. And I want Him to come. I want to tell you, in the last six years, there have been days when I've prayed, Dear God, take me. Or come and get us all. Because there are some things now I will die for. Not those other things that we can argue about. But this. I was... Uh, teaching a class at Randall College. Now it was Hillsdale then. It's Randall now out in Oklahoma. And I was, I was teaching an expository preaching class. And I was spending the nights with Steve Ashby, who was one of my guys in Bible college. He's four, four or five years older than me. But Steve um, is an avid sports fanatic. And it was summer, nothing on but baseball. And there's nothing as boring 
as a nothing to one score in baseball. I mean, I mean I, when my Jonathan played it, I mean, I was all in. But I hate that stuff now. I mean, the only thing I like to do is I, go to, I like to go to the stadiums and get a hot dog. <laughs> and just sit there and watch, watch the grass grow. I mean, you know, just, that's what it's... There was nothing really to watch, so he turned on ESPN and they were showing Texas Hold'em. You know what that is? It's a poker game. My daddy would have dropped dead. I mean, when I was growing up, you didn't play with face cards. I mean, I skipped down, I'm down the road at Paul Moore's house and we played poker. So I knew a lot more about it than I was letting on. But that day, there was a pot of like two or three million dollars, and the tournament got down to two people. And it was riveting to watch these guys do strategy and try to win two or three million dollars. And I learned something about that that I didn't know before. If you're going to win the pot, you have to at some point say two words. You know what they are? You take your hands and you put it around your chips and you shove them to the middle and you say, all in. That's what you have to do. No, no, no reserves, not holding anything back. All in. That's what I'm saying about this. You have faith in your faith and what you've always believed and put your all on it. Shove your all toward Jesus and say, Jesus, I have no reserves. If I'm not going to heaven through Jesus, I'm not going because I don't have a reserve. It's Him and He's the only way. And if you will do what I have told you this morning and you'll go to God and you will not act on your doubts but act on your faith, at some point you'll see your attitude moving back toward trust. Maybe a while, but it'll be helpful. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? I don't know what time.